Heavenly Father, right now, we ask that you would breathe upon us. That you would come and move. And that you would come and speak. And that you would come and minister. We open up our soul and we open up the soul of our church to your voice. And ask that you and you alone would be heard. Come and have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Wasn't that an encouraging word about a whale being trapped in a net, but being set free? If I'm going to be honest this morning, I have really wrestled um, last night and this morning about the word to bring this morning. So bear with me as we journey through this together. Slightly different approach uh, as in the sense that we... Uh, we're journeying through a particular word and, and I think a particular phrase actually that God wants to minister upon and so we're setting up for a ministry time following the word. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1? Um, it's not going to appear on the screen, so do grab your, your phone or your Bible and we're going to 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerohom, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, one was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they'd finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the, priest, Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked 
the Lord for him. This is quite a moving portion of Scripture, I think. And this passage of Scripture contains the story of Elkanah and his two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. And when we read the story, we see that Elkanah's family is a divided family. He has taken two wives, God bless him, and he exists in a house where I think it's fair to say there is a little bit of tension. However, what the scripture teaches us about Elkanah is that he is a godly man. He believes in God. He honors God. He worships God. In fact, the passage that we focus on this morning or the part that we really begin to touch down on is a moment of worship. In verse 4, it says, Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to all his sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. In this moment, we read of a family fulfilling their religious obligations. They've traveled to Shiloh, to the holy place. They've went to church, as it were. And they bring their offering to God, which we read of them eating together. So the idea was in those moments that people would bring their sacrifice and that sacrifice would be offered to the Lord and a portion of it would be given to God, mainly the fat portion. A portion of it would be given to the priest, almost like a tithe type thing, and the rest of the sacrifice would be eaten by the offerer, in this case, Elkanah and his family. And they would eat it together there and then. The idea was almost like they were sharing in this sacrifice with the Lord, that as it was being offered to him and and they were sitting eating it together, it was almost as though in that moment, in that sacrifice, they were united with him, one with him, in union with him. And you can already see the foreshadow of Jesus in that, can't you? That in him we are united to the Godhead. We are in union and communion with him. But this moment of bringing the sacrifice and the family sitting and eating that sacrifice together, it spoke of intimacy. It was almost like they were sharing a meal with God. It speaks of relationship. Because as we've often said, you, you don't eat meals with strangers. You don't sit at tables to eat meals with strangers. Unless you're in Wagamamas, it's a different story. But you tend to sit and eat meals with people that you're in relationship with. So this picture here is a picture of intimacy. It's a picture of friendship. And as we read this family's religious rituals, we read this moment of intimacy with them and God, God begins to shine the spotlight on some stuff. How often does God do that? When we begin to be intimate with him, when we begin to pursue closeness with him, very often he just begins to put the spotlight on a few things, doesn't he? He begins to press a few things and stir a few things up and put his finger on a few bruises and sores and says, right, we're going to deal with this today. And in this moment, God shines a spotlight and the first thing that we see on this spotlight is a little bit of favoritism. Elkanah is carving up the meat And he gives a double portion, the scripture says, to Hannah, his first wife. In some translations, the double portion is translated as the most valued portion. In some translations, it's described as the prized portion. The idea here is that this is almost like like giving this individual fillet steak while everyone else is having corned beef. 
And the concept really is that this prized portion, this most valuable portion, was the portion that was always given to the guest of honor. So in this moment, Elkanah giving the most prized portion, the most valuable portion to his wife, this was an act of all-out favoritism. It was putting her in this moment in the place of honor in that meal and in that moment. This was an expression of his affection. She had his heart. However, verse 6 says something interesting. It says, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. It would seem, in a sense, that Elkanah's public displays of affection towards Hannah, his displays of favoritism, of honor, were ruffling the feathers of the second wife. She felt an injustice here. She was the mother of his children. She'd given him legacy. She'd given him succession. She'd given him everything. Hannah had given him nothing, but yet she was in the place of honor. Yet she was on the receiving end of affection and favor. There was an injustice. She felt insecure. She felt vulnerable. So she acted upon her feelings by honing in on Hannah's weak spot, her insecurity, her personal struggle, the fact that she couldn't have kids. Penina felt insecure and worthless. So she sought to make Hannah feel the same. It's that age-old truth, isn't it? Hurt people hurt people. And Penina, she provoked Hannah. She bullied her. She emotionally abused her. She was pushing Hannah's buttons, pressing that wound on her soul. And Hannah, she gets to breaking point and she weeps and she would not eat. And there's a few things that we pull out from this. And the first is notice that Hannah is fellowshipping with God in a place of intimacy. It's a place of communion, a place of friendship. And she's in this place of intimacy and friendship, but she's still hurting on the inside. It's possible to be intimate with God and still hurt on the inside. It's possible to explore friendship with God, but still battle, still struggle with the stuff of life and the lot that life seems to have dealt with you. Quite often we come into these moments and we almost feel like we're frauds to come and worship and to press in because we've got this pain on the inside, but it's not been a fraud, it's been real. It's all right, we don't need to come with everything all together into God's presence. In fact, it's when we choose to pursue God despite the pain that God very often begins to deal with the pain. But secondly, Hannah's pain is others inflicted. She's struggling with her lot in life. She's struggling with the experiences of life and the people within those experiences. And this has to, in some senses, be a reality check because the scripture doesn't say here, Hannah was under spiritual attack. It doesn't say that the demonic forces of heaven had a target on Hannah. The reality is that for most Christians, nine times out of ten, our struggles are not with powers and principalities coming after little old us. 
It's not always spiritual and demonic. Sometimes it is, and they have to be dealt with, and they have to be confronted. But most times, our struggles are with the experiences of life and the people within them. And it's important that we identify those. Because if we're too busy labeling everything as a spiritual problem, and if we're too busy binding and loosing everything to try and get a resolution to that situation, then we fail to effectively process the pain that we're in, and we fail to effectively deal with the situations that we're facing. Thirdly, though, Hannah is in a place where when you look at it on the surface, everything's pretty good. She's in a place of intimacy with God right there in that moment. It's the highlight for them going up to the place of worship and, and, and having this moment. She has been showered in public displays of affection from her husband. But even though on the surface, everything looks pretty good, she still lives with a private personal pain. And we can at times be in a really good season of life. And we can at times be in a place where on the surface and the face that we've got to everybody else shows that everything's going really well and everything's really good. And actually life, all the pieces are falling into place and things are really good and it's a positive season in life. But inside we carry and struggle with personal pain. Pain that no one else really sees or knows or even gets. Elkanah's turning to Hannah and going, I don't really understand why you're so upset. Am I worth more to you than 10 sons? And you're like, mate, you just don't get it, do you? He doesn't understand the pain that she's in. He doesn't get it. And you know, there's moments in which we carry stuff that other people just don't get. They, they can't logically process it. They don't see it the way that we see it or think about it the way that we think about it or understand it the way that we understand it. They just don't get it. And the Bible suggests to us that Hannah has been in this place for years now. In fact, verse 3 specifically says that year after year, the cycle of pain unfolds. They go to the holy place as a family. Elkanah showers her with affection, honors her, favors her, Penina becomes insecure and makes herself feel better by bringing Hannah down. And even though this is happening, it makes me wonder, has Hannah ever considered why Penina is behaving that way? And there is a bit of poetic license in her interpretation of this, but has she ever thought about why Penina is responding this way? Because if you look at it, it does seem like there's injustices on both sides. Hannah's facing the injustice of life. Everything within her wants to be a mother and, and it's not happening and she feels that this is an injustice. And, and meanwhile, the other wife is churning out babies right, left and center. There's an injustice happening here. But is like, what's going on? I'm the mother of his kids. I've given him everything and yet she is constantly being favored over me. She's constantly been given his affection. Why won't he love me like he loves her? There's injustice on both sides. And sometimes we have to realize that quite often people act the way that they act out of a place of pain. And I know that I've been really challenged with the fact that before I come up and go, you should not have spoken to me like that, you should not have done that, that maybe actually the more important question is, why did that happen? 
Why did you speak like that? Why, where did that come from? Because sometimes when we understand other people's pain, it makes it easier to process what we're on the receiving end of. However, the flip side of that is, yes, there's times in which we understand that person's going through some stuff, that person's facing some difficult stuff in life, they're going through a very difficult season, and that's maybe why they've behaved the way that they behave, but it doesn't change the fact that even though we know why, it still hurts. It still hurts. And Hannah's in this place where she's hurting. And she's hurting because she's disappointed. She's disappointed that she couldn't have kids. And we know this because it says that on one of the occasions, Hannah left the meal, and in the bitterness of her soul, she wept and prayed to the Lord. In the bitterness of her soul, she wept and she prayed. And what she's praying about is, God, would you remember me and and give me a son? So we know that the source of this bitterness, the source of this disappointment is around that. And here's an important point. Bitterness breeds through disappointment. Hannah is struggling with the fact that she can't have kids and she knows that there's nothing she can do about it. There's nothing that she can do to change it. It's not her fault. But it doesn't change the fact that even although There's nothing she can do about it. Even though there's nothing she can do to change it, even though it's not her fault, it's still hers. This is her private personal pain that she bears. She's disappointed. Disappointment leads to bitterness in her soul. In fact, as she describes her own actions, she says, I have been praying here out of my own great anguish and grief. These are big words. Anguish. Grief. It shows that what she's feeling is not just a little melancholy. It's not that she's sad. She's sore. It's pain. And it's pain that nobody else sees and nobody else knows about because she leaves the table on her own. She prays silently before God. Her pain, her anguish, her grief, her bitterness is impacting her journey in life. It's become, in a sense, her own prison. Every year, year in, year out, she goes through this cycle, probably in between times too, where she's living with this grief and this anguish and this disappointment. It's like a prison around her soul that impacts who she is and what she does. And she comes before God. She gets to a point where she can't take it anymore and she comes before God and she breaks down and she weeps and she prays and she lets all that she's carrying inside of her soul out. All that she's kept locked up inside of her comes pouring out. All of the bitterness, all of the hurt, all of the anguish, all of the grief. In fact, she explains to the priest in verse 15, I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. She's pouring out her soul. The Hebrew word that is used here is the same description as that which is used to describe the alabaster jar being smashed open at the feet of Jesus in Luke chapter 7. She breaks open her soul and she empties out, pours out all of the contents before God. She lets everything that's in come rushing out and I don't imagine that that would have looked orderly and elegant and reserved, and west of Scotland-ish. 
because someone watching on thought that she was drunk. And I know we read this and we read the description of he saw that her lips were moving but no sound was coming out. But part of me thinks, what must she have been like if he looked on and thought, she's drunk? She must have been undone. She comes before God. She bursts open her soul. She breaks open her soul and pours out everything that's inside. And she does business with him. And as a result, we're then told that she later conceived and gave birth to a son called Samuel. This moment is a transition point. It's a threshold moment. It's a significant moment. This is the moment that she got her breakthrough. And here's the phrase that I think God would say to us. Sometimes you have to break out before you can break through. Sometimes you have to break out before you can break through. Hannah had to break out. She had to break out of her disappointment. She had to break out of her grief. She had to break out of her anguish. She had to break out of the prison of the personal pain that was built around her soul that shaped who she was and what she was, her identity, her outlook in life, her mindset towards life, that which shaped her thought processes and her reactions and her actions. She had to break out of that before she could break through into the purpose of God. She had to release the pain that she was carrying before she could receive the purpose that she was to carry. And you know, sometimes we need to break out before we can break through. Sometimes we have to break out of our disappointments, of our grief, of our anguish, of our self-pity warranted at times. Sometimes we have to break out of that place of personal pain that hinders and restricts us and shapes us as a people. The stuff that nobody else sees and nobody else truly gets it or understands it. On the surface, life looks like it's good. All is well in the world, but deep down inside we're hurting as we revisit those conversations in our minds and we revisit those experiences and those emotions and those pains and we have to let go of some of the stuff that we're carrying in order to carry something significant for God. And sometimes that might get a little bit messy. It might not be neat and it might not be orderly and it might not be elegant, but it's worth it. Because when we break out, we break through. In fact, we see this with the woman with the alabaster jar in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is dining at the home of one of the Pharisees and the story goes from verse 37. A woman who had led a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and as she stood behind him weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The story goes that this woman was a prostitute. The text doesn't call that out. But where the Pharisee says, if he's known who was touching him, that she is a sinner, the Aramaic word for sinner is the word that's used for both sinner and whore. So we pick up from that, that the sinful lifestyle that she's led is quite an interesting one. She sells her body for sex. 
And she's clearly made a significant amount of money to be able to purchase this alabaster jar of perfume, that which would have been viewed as a very expensive jar of perfume, and that cost her loads. It cost her much. Given how she earns her money, then this very expensive jar of perfume cost her emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually, because she comes to his feet for forgiveness. It cost her her everything. And she brings this jar that represents her everything to Jesus. And she falls at his feet. And she breaks open all that represents who she is and her lifestyle, all that represents all of that emotional, mental, physical, spiritual trauma. She pours it all at his feet. And his response to her is, Your sins are forgiven. Here we see what, in a sense, she's had to break out of. She's had to break out of her sinful lifestyle. But actually, it's more than that. Because when the Pharisee sees what's going on, he's horrified. He can't believe that this woman is in his house. He can't believe that this woman is found at his dinner table. He can't believe that this woman is touching Jesus and that Jesus is letting her touch him because culture declared that for such a woman to touch you or even to be associated with you was for you yourself to become unclean. And so because that was the conditions of the community, as it were, the culture of the community, then the community ignored her. She was avoided. Their culture forbid interaction with people like her. There was no space in society for people like her. But Jesus welcomed her. And he loved her. And he says to the Pharisee, you didn't even welcome me and provide for my needs. But she has served all of those in this moment. And we look at this and we see this moment in which he announces your sins are forgiven. And we're like, yes, her sins have been forgiven. But actually what we've got to realize here is her presence in this house is a brave act of all out tenacity. She had to break out of her life of sin, yes, but she had to break out of the conditioning of culture. She had to break out of that which she'd been made to believe about herself. She had to break out of that which dictated the way that she behaved and where she went and when she went and who she was seen with. She had to break out of that belief that there was no place for her. She had to break out in order to break through. And she broke out to find her place at the feet of Jesus in service of him. And in this moment, she is released into peace. The actual phrase here in the Greek isn't go in peace, it's go into peace. And so actually Jesus releases her into a lifestyle of peace. And we see in the text the transformation. She comes to his feet, wetting them with her tears. The Greek word is that her tears are showering like rain on his feet. She breaks her everything before him she breaks her everything and she's in a place of distress and upset she's a mess an emotional mess at his feet but she rises as a woman of peace she gets the breakthrough that she was looking for but she had to break out before she could break through some of us need to break out of the conditions that have been set upon us 
or the conditions that we have set for ourselves, the conditions of culture round about us, the conditions that we've been raised within, the things that have been said over us, the things that have been said about us, the things that have been said to us that dictate and shape the way that we function and the way that we behave that actually form the culture in our soul that we allow to shape who we are. We need to break out of that in order to break through into all that God has. Some of us have to break out of our sin. Some of us have to break out of the sinful lifestyle and pursue God with all that we've got and find our place at his feet and all out surrender to him. And that's where we find true peace and that's where real breakthrough happens. We have to break out before we can break through. Blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10 had to break out of the restraint of the crowd telling him to be quiet and not to bother. He had to break out of the restraint of the crowd and find his voice and gain the attention of Jesus to find that breakthrough in the miraculous. Sometimes we need to break out of the limitations and the restraints that have been put upon us or that we've allowed others to put upon us and we need to find our voice and capture the attention of heaven and see breakthrough happen in our lives and in our circumstances. We need to break out in prayer. We need to break out in intercession. We need to break out of our inhibitions and our limitations and lay hold of the feet of Jesus and not let go until breakthrough begins to happen in our circumstances. The Israelites in Joshua chapter 6, they marched around the city of Jericho once every day for six days. On the seventh day, they marched around it seven times, and on the seventh time, they raised their voices and began to shout. Now, there is no rhyme nor reason to this approach. There has never been a time in history when a walled city has been conquered by shouting at it. There was no logic in this approach. There was no reasoning. It didn't make sense. It was just all out obedience to the voice of God. And yet when they raised their voices, the walls came down and they broke through into victory and into the promise of God. Sometimes we need to break out of logic and reasoning. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have knowledge and understanding in our faith. But sometimes we need to break out of the need to have everything compartmentalized in little boxes. Sometimes we need to break out of the need to have all the ducks in the row facing the right way at exactly the right angle. Sometimes we need to break out of our need to be in control in order to let him be in control because that's when breakthrough begins to happen. We need to break out in obedience to him. And see, I don't get this. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense, but I'm so sold out for you. I'm going to break out of logic in order to break through in obedience. Gideon is sifting wheat in a wine press when we meet him in Judges 6. He's hiding from his enemies for fear of what they're going to do to him. And God comes down and meets with them. And he says this, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? And here's Gideon's response. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our fathers told us about? You think, you're cheeky sod. The angel of the Lord is standing in front of you saying, hello, I'm here and I'm with you. And he's like, really? 
Gideon's fear tainted his faith. Fear dents faith. In fact, fear damages faith. His fear, Gideon's fear, tainted his faith. In fact, it caused him to lose sight of God. It caused him to lose sight of who God is. And it caused him to lose sight of what God can do. And not only did he lose sight of God, but he he struggles to grasp his identity and his calling because he says, but God, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my clan. Gideon's fear has restricted, even damaged his view of who God is and of who he is in God. He has to break out of that fear in order to break through in his calling and his identity. The angel of the Lord came down and stood outside the wine press, which meant Gideon had to get out in order to fully step into an encounter with him and all that God had for him. You know, sometimes fear robs us of our vision. And it can rob us both of our vision in God and our vision of what he's calling us to do and our vision of what he's enabling us to do. And we have to break out of our wine presses, out of our prisons of fear in order to break through into all that God has for us, in order to see him and be all that he calls us to be. There are moments in which we need to break out before we can break through. There's moments in which when we're the whale caught in the net, we have to break out before we can properly break through. This morning, I believe that God is speaking quite powerfully to us. Still trying to process in a sense what that means for us as a church in terms of the soul of the church. This morning, I believe he would call to each of us, it's time to break out, because it's time to break through, to break out of personal pain and break through in purpose, to break out of sin and the conditions of culture and the limitations of other people's views and opinions, and break through and find ourselves in service of him, to break through into peace in all of its fullness, to break out of restraint and limitation and to find our voice and see heaven break through on the earth, to break out in prayer and intercession and laying hold of him and chasing after him, church, in order to see heaven break out in our city and in our communities, to break out in faith and obedience, in order to break through in his promises and his victory. To break out in fear of fear, in order to break through into who God is calling us to be. To break out of wrong beliefs that play like tapes in our mind and break through in our identity. To break out in faith, in order to break through in the miraculous. To break out of the boat and begin to walk upon the water and find him where he is. It's time for us to break out. And you know, as a church, I think God is speaking and it's been interesting some of the chats that we've had as deacons even just recently. Hannah's in this place, in this moment when barrenness has turned to fruitfulness. She broke out of barrenness and broke through into fruitfulness. And the key to that 
was when she broke out in prayer and intercession and laid hold of God. When she took everything that was within her and she poured it all out and said, I am doing business with you, God. When she broke out in that, that's when she broke through into fruitfulness. And Glasgow, I'm not saying that we're barren because we're not. But I think the key to lasting fruitfulness is that we break out a little bit. Break out of the limitations. Break out of the inhibitions. Break out of some of the stuff that even this pandemic lifestyle has put upon us. Some of those restraints that perhaps we don't realize that are there, but they're there. We need to break out of this. We need to break out of the mindset and the model of this is how it should be and this is the way it's going to be. This is what the church should look like. This is the way the church is going to go and and this is what the future should look like and this is the style and this is the direction. Let's lay it all down and break out of it all and say, do you know what? We're not going to put a box around this. We're breaking out of anything that's been spoken over us. We're breaking out of anything that has been shaping us. We're breaking out of it to break through into whatever it is you have for us and what he has for us is fruitfulness. It's fruitfulness. It's time to break out in order to break through. Let's stand together, shall we?